Welcome to the On the Blue Couch podcast. I'm Kathleen, creator and host and psychotherapist, bringing you information, reflections, and interviews on anything and everything related to therapy. This is episode 25, Gaming and Addiction, a conversation with Dr. Jason D. Hacker. Welcome to this 25th episode. I will be sharing with you today a previously recorded interview with a colleague of mine, Jason D. Hacker. He is a psychologist here uh, in the Chicago area. He has his own practice. Um, And one of his areas of expertise is that in internet addiction and video game addiction. So given that the internet and video games are part of our culture and our everyday life, I wanted to know more about at what point does the use of these uh, become an addiction? Uh, What do you see in a person um, who has moved from a little bit too much use to to maybe a fuller addiction? Um, And then what are the treatment options that are out there? So Jason walks us through all of this and, uh, and then some more. Uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. For any further questions, you can email him directly. Um, his, his website and his email are on my website, onthebluecouch.com. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Jason. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate you uh, being willing to talk to us about uh, gaming and addiction. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here, and I uh, hope this will be informative for our, few, for our listeners out there. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I wanted to start by first asking you about specifically what gaming is and how you describe it to people. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the image that a lot of people have, uh, at least people of sort of an older generation of what video games are, things like Pac-Man or Mario Brothers, like this idea of a pretty small pixelated character, hop around, mm-hmm. you have a stage you have to try to complete. Um, it's usually measured in time, or if you fall off or miss miss time something, then you lose and you have to start over, right? That's sort of the, where games came from. Um, yeah. The earliest games being as simple as like two bars and a ball and just trying to knock it back and forth. Um, but games have really evolved uh, in the last 30 years. Um, just thinking about computing power, so like your NES, which was one of your first home computer, uh, home gaming consoles, could perform about 8 million percent. Uh, computing procedures per second, which sounds really fast when it you think sure about is, it. Yeah. Um, and li- thinking about what they looked like back then, how could that possibly be? Um, but thinking about the PS4, which came out in 2013, can perform 1.8 trillion processes in the same time period. You're talking about essentially exponential uh, improvement in computer processing power. So it gives game developers an opportunity to basically take any idea that they have, uh, real life, imagined, and try to put it into a game. Um, and so games today look very different uh, than they looked like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from these large uh, multiplayer games that uh, the software is updated constantly. You purchase it once. Uh, there's add-ons, opportunities to continue, but the game essentially lives on year, month to month, year to year, uh, to like the blockbuster releases that happen a few times a year, uh, major titles, or small independent developers creating games that cover basic day, day-to-day functioning. Delivering newspapers, uh, mm-hmm. like Paperboy was on NES, is mm-hmm. back again in, in new versions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an opportunity to kind of really basically take any idea you have and 
make it competitive and interesting in most cases, mm -hmm. uh, turn it into a game. I was wondering about when do you think it becomes an addiction? When do you start to, um, I guess, what are the signs of what makes a gaming addiction versus someone who's just really way into a game? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a really important consideration mm -hmm. because uh, gaming in and of itself has a lot of positive characteristics, and I think it can be misperceived very easily that okay. the way someone's playing is, is looking like an addiction just because mm -hmm. of the amount of time they spend. Um, it's... Mm -hmm. Just like drinking, we don't think about it that way, or at least I don't think about it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I can't tell you much about someone's functioning with alcohol based on how many times they drink or how much they drink per day. Once it gets really excessive, then it's more easy, but it could be a problem just a few drinks a day. Um, with gaming, it's similar. So the th kinds of things that we look for are similar to what we look for with substances or gambling. Mm -hmm. um, so one is tolerance. We know that games... Uh, create a similar reaction in the brain, a similar dopaminergic reaction as uh, some stimulants and other kinds of drugs. And mm -hmm. so uh, to get that feeling, that positive euphoric kind of feeling you could get from playing a game and being successful, um, sometimes it starts to take more and more times playing or more and more hours or more significant uh, accomplishments to be able to feel that same level of enjoyment. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we really talk about when we're talking about tolerance. Um, and so similarly, there can be withdrawal. Um, it's still being looked at from a research perspective. So there's a lot of questions still about what constitutes video game or internet withdrawal. Um, but the things that seem to stand out are sort of irritability um, and some mood dysregulation that occurs for people who have been playing for a long period of time and then stop, mm -hmm. um, that they actually self-report changes in their own mood. Mm -hmm. um, that's an important thing to look at. Um, changes in behavior is another really important telltale sign that someone's gaming has become a problem. Mm -hmm. um, so somebody who typically is performing well academically stops being able to do so, um, is missing assignments, is uh, not showing up to work if they're working, mm -hmm. um, or performing poorly at work. Uh, and in, in part, that's accounted for by time spent playing video games or lost sleep mm -hmm. uh, in relation to video games. Um, so I think the behavior change is also a really important factor to consider when you're thinking about it as an addiction. Um, there really do need to be consequences. Um, and for somebody who isn't experiencing a lot of consequences from their gaming, even if they're playing a lot of hours, it's really hard to call that an addiction. Well, and that's why I was wondering a little bit more about the mind-body-brain impact. You kind of just started talking about that. If you could just say a little bit more about... Um, the impact, the effects, if someone has moved into a gaming addiction, what that can look like? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so the research on this is really coming mostly out of uh, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, mm -hmm. Korea, nations that are having pretty significant issues with internet and gaming addiction, mm -hmm. um, including, unfortunately, some high, highly publicized deaths in the last couple of years of people playing games um, for 20, 30, 40-hour stretches without eating, drinking, mm -hmm. taking breaks, oftentimes in conditions that aren't very healthy, which probably you actually contributed to them passing away more than the game itself. Mm -hmm. um, but a pretty significant issue there um, for people having actual physiological impact from gaming. Yeah, that's pretty extreme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what we know about sort of how it affects a person, any person who's playing a game, um, and certainly affecting those who are playing games uh, to this excessive level, mm -hmm. uh, the primary impact is on executive functioning. So there's good fMRI studies out there to show um, that the 
parts of our brain that are involved in kind of executive functioning, so the frontal lobe uh, mm-hmm. and some of the, the primary areas in the frontal and parietal lobes. Uh, so what we're talking about really is uh, the part of the brain that's involved in behavioral inhibition, mm-hmm. uh, atten- sustaining attention, uh, organizing. It also is really important in uh, social interactions. So we, t- we tend to think about the executive functioning being important when we're doing important a task like studying or reading or paying attention to a lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a requirement to be able to build social relationships. I have to be able to attend to what you're saying mm-hmm. um, and reflect on that and reflect on how it impacts me. And mm-hmm. without uh, successful executive functioning, it's really difficult for someone to do that. Mm-hmm. They're pulled away by some distractor. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the first thing you said out of your mouth or maybe it's the thing that I heard coming from the room next door. Mm-hmm. If you can't attend to someone socially, then you can't really build a strong relationship. So mm-hmm. there's impact there, even beyond just academic or professional work. Mm-hmm. So in addition to executive functioning um, being impacted, are there any other areas, other parts of the brain that you'd like to speak to that are impacted uh, by uh, gaming addiction? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other important one I think to be thinking about and still requires a lot more research is its impact on the amygdala. Uh, So we know that the amygdala regulates uh, emotions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there is some evidence to suggest that the actual structure of the amygdala is affected by by, uh, persistent or progressive gaming, gaming for hours on end. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's another important piece to really be thinking about, especially when you're working with people that um, some of their potential explosivity or uh, problems in social relationships may be attending, and part of it may also be uh, in regards to having a hard time regulating their emotions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I wanted to ask you some questions about, are there are there people, certain kinds of demographics or uh, particular characteristics that set people at risk for a gaming addiction mm-hmm. that you could speak to? Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of the research, what's out there, uh, it it seems to be more prevalent in boys and men. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that, you have to consider that uh, men and boys do make up a larger percentage of those who identify as regular gamers. So Mm -hmm. like playing at least three hours a week. Um, would kind of is what the video game industry, software industry suggests is sort of a regular gamer, um, and that's still about fifty six percent men compared to maybe you know forty four percent women in mm-hmm. that group. Okay. So, part of why we may be seeing addiction at a higher level in men and boys could be related to the fact that there's just more men and boys pl- playing these games, um, and not necessarily that the base rates are different. So there's more research to be done there, but men and boys do seem to be at risk. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of evidence around disruption in family relationships, uh, so we can think about what conflict in a home for a child whose brain is developing, the impact that that might have, where they might turn when they're faced with situations that are difficult to process or understand. Um, games are pretty straightforward. If you learn enough about it and play enough, mm-hmm. you're going to get better, and it's going to be consistent. Relationships don't work that way, mm-hmm. um, so we know that that's definitely a risk factor. Uh, there's some evidence around esteem and, and loneliness. Uh, as both also potentially being predictive factors for uh, problematic game game use. Um, again, we're not sure, I think, because a lot of this research is being done sort of post hoc with people who are already identifing with having the disorder. Mm-hmm. Is, it the ga- is it the excessive gaming that leads to low self-esteem and loneliness, or mm-hmm. is it that that's what sort of precludes it or leads up to someone beginning to take up games and be more susceptible to being addicted to them? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's really interesting. There's some research out about the kinds of games you play mm-hmm. and how that may contribute to the risk for uh, developing an addiction or mm-hmm. problematic use. Um, so games that uh, allow for a lot of autonomy. Um, so it's an opportunity to sort of decide your own fate. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just 
I need to follow the script and if I do things successfully I win but you know if you're familiar with Star Wars the light side and the dark side sort of where this started in gaming there would be player progression on the light side, player progression on the dark side, or good and evil, or some other variation of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every choice you make determines the outcome of that character. So you have different opportunities depending on how good you are, or potentially how evil or how self-indulgent you are in as a character in the game. And so those kinds of games certainly contribute uh, to people f- becoming more immersed in them and therefore may contribute to some addictiveness. And that that research is coming partly from actually what people are self-reporting that leads them into gaming and the kinds of games that are harder for them to stop playing. Mm -hmm. Um, The other is that those that build a sense of competency. So games with a higher uh, learning curve, they're more Mm -hmm. difficult. Uh, It takes more time and energy and investment to get good at it, Mm -hmm. like it would playing an instrument. Mm -hmm. There's a, a real sense, I think, of satisfaction that comes from that. And so there's some evidence that Games that are um, pretty complex or complicated um, at, fall at that end of the spectrum really kind of draw people in and make it hard to stop. Mm-hmm. In addition, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the games that are so easy you can pick it up and play for two minutes and put it down mm-hmm. can also cause people a lot of trouble um, because they can make progress within a minute or two, mm-hmm. whereas that's pretty difficult to do in other parts of your life. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering your take on protective factors, those things that might decrease the likelihood of uh, someone developing a gaming addiction. So working a lot with uh, with teens and and young adults, there does seem to be some benefit of having some parental knowledge um, of Mm -hmm. video games. So some opportunity to do psychoeducation with parents um, Mm -hmm. would be, I think, be a really nice preventative factor. I think schools could be more involved in this kind of thing as well Mm -hmm. Um, in doing it not just for those who are at risk, but for the general population, just to sort of understand the world that their kids are operating in, especially if you were never really exposed to video games and don't sort of understand uh, the reward principles that are at play here Mm -hmm. that really uh, contribute to why that's the one behavior you're having to set limits on with your kid Mm -hmm. more so than maybe TV or other things that they enjoy doing because there's a separate added sort of reward factor that's playing out for them. So Mm -hmm. um, I think parental involvement and knowledge is really important, Mm -hmm. um, particularly for preventing it with younger kids. Um, There's good evidence for positive social relationships, and that can be both within gaming and outside of gaming. Uh, Mm -hmm. So... There's reports by folks who have struggled with gaming addiction that having friends who they knew outside of the gaming world but also played games with them to call them out on when they were uh, engaging in potentially uh, irresponsible gaming behavior Mm -hmm. was really helpful for them. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, man, you play too much or listen, you should think about cutting back a little bit was a a big kind of uh, factor for helping them be more aware of the behavior, Mm -hmm. um, which we'll talk a little bit. But awareness is obviously really important for treatment. Mm and then there seems to be some evidence coming out around social emotional skill development um, and there, so gaps for kids around how to deal with certain social situations, uh, how to regulate emotions uh, when they feel anxious or overwhelmed, mm-hmm. um, having kids have these other alternative outlets that tend to be a little bit more reliant on mm-hmm. other people in their lives or mm-hmm. things that are physically engaging that we know, uh, things like exercise or mm-hmm. uh, participation in sports, creates uh, psychological benefits above and beyond just uh, exercise, but the relieving of stress. So those are the kinds of things that seem to be really helpful in in preventing this kind of thing for developing and can be really important for people. So when people actually walk through your door, um, how do you think about assessment? How do you think about treatment? 
Um, I think I wanted to hear a little bit more about what that process kind of looks like, how you think about it. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, uh, you know, talking about some of the factors that play out with addiction, like tolerance, withdrawal, um, looking at attempts to reduce use and whether or not that's working successfully, uh, all those are really important. Uh, I, th- I tend to like to think about sort of the development of an addiction and trying to get a sense of where somebody might be at at the time at which I'm seeing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really think about it in, f- in four categories. I'll just give you a little sense of each one. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being sort of take it or leave it gaming, uh, which to me is where we all want to be, uh, mm-hmm. those of us who play games anyway, mm-hmm. uh, that it's something you can pick up and play when you have free time. Um, that might mean you have a weekend binge session where you play all weekend, but it's because you had that weekend blocked off for it and everybody knows that's what's set up. Um, but when it comes to having responsibilities with school or work, it's not too hard to say, okay, maybe I won't play it all this weekend or I'm going to limit it to an hour on Saturday and an hour on Sunday or maybe one hour after work because I know this is going to be a stressful week for me. That's sort of take it or leave it. And so mm-hmm. trying to get a sense for people uh, of what is what is their relationship like with the game when they're playing it and when they're not. Um, kind of, to me, the step up from there is people who are starting to show uh, that they're re- reward motivated for playing. Um, so now it's less about the fun of the game or the social opportunity of getting online and uh, you know linking up with your friends and, and playing through the most recent quest or you know online multiplayer. Mm-hmm. But it's actually about the accomplishments. So the preoccupation starts to come in. People are thinking about the game when they're not playing because they want to make sure that they're moving up fast enough or getting access to the skills or powers that they want. Um, and I think that also will show a shift in social relationships, both in-game and out-of-game. So mm-hmm. people who are more reward-motivated to play are going to be less invested in relationships with people who don't play mm-hmm. um, or who won't indulge them in a conversation about the game, even if they don't play it. Parents experience that a lot. Kid wants to talk about the game. You try to do so for 10 or 15 minutes, but that's not where they want to stop. They want to keep going. They want to tell you every detail and aspect that's enough to be, I think, at least thinking about where what, what is motivating your child to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in-game, too, people will start to move towards only playing with people who are similarly reward-motivated. So the casual, casual gamers, as they're so nicely called or referred to, both negatively and positively on all the mm-hmm. forums, mm-hmm. Um, become less interesting for people who are really re- reward-motivated. They want the competition or they want other people to work with them that are at the same level, the same investment. Mm-hmm. They're going to be there when they get on it at 11 o'clock at night and play until 4 in the morning. Um, so the next step from there is abuse. And I think we think about abuse and dependence with other addictions. And mm-hmm. to me, where abuse comes in is when somebody's having clear consequences and they're still playing as much as they have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're starting to you know, have negative work uh, evaluations from their bosses or missing work time. Um, their grades change. Uh, social relationships are more conflictual. Uh, mm-hmm. These are some of the consequences that can come along with um, the kind of being really sucked into the, the gaming experience. Um, and so there, too, you're looking for more psychological consequences. The moodiness is more apparent, maybe some of the withdrawal as well. Um, and it takes a lot more for these folks to feel like they're getting what they want out of the gaming experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last being dependence. And just like with uh, substances or gambling, when someone's really struggling at the level of dependence, um, 
you might have to shift how you treat them, but the assessment is really about how much have they tried to stop? How have they tried to stop? And, mm-hmm. and has it worked or has it not? Mm-hmm. Um, and people who have tried and used a lot of the tools we'll talk about and are still really struggling, they may be further along in their progression and therefore the treatment may have to shift to more of an abstinence kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um, and even looking at things like video game rehab uh, mm-hmm. as an opportunity for treatment. Mm-hmm. I was wondering about that. I was wondering if there was actual places people could go for their video game addictions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there are, and they're, they're growing. I mean, and, yeah, okay. and so uh, Reconnect was the first sort of U.S. Uh, program that was designed specifically around gaming addiction. Um, you can find them online mm-hmm. um, if you Google Reconnect uh, Treatment Center. Uh, many of the other well-known substance abuse treatment centers, uh, like places like Hazelden, are developing uh, mm-hmm. programs or have developed programs um, that are based on their models that they use for other addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, just like anything else in this field, we need more research on the outcomes for that, how it's working for people. Mm-hmm. But it is out there, so there are opportunities for people who feel like uh, they need to get away from their current setting to be able to recover, mm-hmm. or if families are saying this is, you know, this has reached a point where um, other tactics aren't working. Mm-hmm. Okay, so once you've, um, you know, fully assessed and you are really able to figure out where someone kind of is within these four categories, um, what does treatment look like? And clearly, I mean, you know, it will depend on where someone is, but could you just describe that a little bit? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. The, the piece that I like to always like to start with, and I think that it's, it's something that we overlook at times in all mental health treatment, and that is uh, somebody's motivation for treatment and motivation mm-hmm. to be there. Um, we tend to think this person's come through our door, or they've told their doctor or someone else that they're concerned about a behavior or anxiety or depression, uh, and so we think this person's here to be treated for anxiety or depression, when in reality what they're coming to us for are things, the things that actually motivate them are, I want a better relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend, Mm -hmm. or I want less conflict with my child at home. Um, You know, I I just want to feel better. And so particularly with behavioral issues, addictions, um, it's really important to get a sense of what is motivating someone to be in treatment um, and helping them start to bridge the gap between uh, changing their behavior and the things that actually motivate them because what motivates you and I or what might motivate you and I to stop gaming isn't necessarily going to be the same for somebody who has been struggling with this for a long time um, and so I spend oftentimes a good chunk of the early phase of treatment really just focusing on on motivation and sort of rolling with the resistance that people have even though they're there mm-hmm. They don't necessarily want to hear that gaming is the problem or that it's a part of the story that has to be looked at along with other aspects of their mental health. Okay, so I was wondering about when people are now participating in their treatment um, and they're um, invested, uh, what, what does that look like and where do you go in the treatment at that point? Yeah, the most typical place that I'll start with somebody then is to really get a full record of their gaming. Um, and this can be a pretty complicated process for, for people, depending on how they game, mm-hmm. um, or what they're using as their primary mode, or what multiple uh, methods they're using. So mm-hmm. um, a, lot of, a lot of video games have sort of in-game trackers that'll tell you how much time you've played. Yeah. I actually try to encourage people away from using those when they're starting this process of tracking their gaming. For one, 
it oftentimes shows how many hundreds of hours may have already been put into a particular game, which can be discouraging if you're thinking about, okay, now I'm going to track my gaming mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm already like hundreds of hours behind where I want to be. Mm -hmm. So, um, but using like a, even a stopwatch on your, on your cell phone, like downloading an app uh, mm -hmm. to track or, you know, a, a, if you're still wearing a watch, that's a good way to do it. Or having a timer that you use to track your gaming. Mm -hmm. um, and do this for a week where you're not limiting your play. You're going to limit it some just because you're tracking and you're not going to want to report back to someone like me that how much you've actually played. But mm -hmm. um, to encourage people to actually give a real, uh, a real account of how much they're playing. Some of the people I see, they don't play traditional video games on consoles or on their computers. Uh, they play games on their phones. And so sometimes their engagement with the game might be for 10 seconds or 25 seconds at a time. But if they're trying to write a paper for class and it takes them 12 hours because every minute, half a minute, they're checking their phone to play their game, mm -hmm. taking their next turn, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, it can be a real problem. So for those folks, I, you know, keep a tally sheet, you know, mm -hmm. as simple as that, a sheet of paper that you keep with you. How many times did you look? Um, you know, add an extra tally if it's longer than your typical amount of time playing. So if you typically look at it for 30 seconds, make it two ticks if you look at it for a minute and four if you look at it for two minutes. Mm -hmm. um, or do things like, Put a, put a rubber bands around your arm, maybe 20, 30, and swap them from arm to arm for an hour just to get a sense of every time you play, you have to move the rubber band from your left arm to your right arm wow. or a paper clip from your left pocket to your right pocket just to get a sense that at the end you can look at it and go, okay, so I, in the course of this last hour, played interacted with this game 25 times for an average of 15 seconds or 20 seconds mm -hmm. well that's half that time <laughs> mm -hmm. you know so that that really adds up quickly so that's that's usually the first piece and I think that's really helpful for people to get a sense of just how much they're playing um, and then from there we work into what I call moderation planning um, so we mentioned abstinence a little bit before mm -hmm. as a possibility for someone who's really struggling and has tried other things and stopped but for most people that's not where we're going to start we're going to start with a moderation plan which does really accomplishes two primary goals. One is it, it gives us a sense of just uh, what level of uh, kind of gaming behavior you're at. So if we set up a full moderation plan and we m modify it appropriately to your life and you're still struggling, it lets us know that maybe we do have to look at abstinence. Um, the other thing that it accomplishes is it makes the person an active participant in their treatment. Um, so we're negotiating the plan together in treatment once a week. Um, and once we finish that conversation for that week, that's the plan that you stick to and you have to do it every time. So you can't modify your plan on Saturday night because your friends are having a LAN party or everybody's getting online from, you know, midnight to noon on Saturday, on Saturday night into Sunday morning. Um, so I always talk with people about, you're developing this plan, we're doing it together, but once it's set in session, we're leaving it alone, at least until the next week where we can look back at it and get a sense of what's working and what's mm -hmm. not. Okay. Is there anything else you want people to know about what the treatment can look like? Yeah, I think it's really important that people consider how they're going to fill in the time that they used to spend gaming. Okay. Uh, in addition to how, how, mm. what kind of coping mechanisms they're going to rely on mm. if part of what led them to gaming was mm. certain outside stressors in their mm. life. Um, so oftentimes we're going to be doing sort of either cognitive or behavioral type interventions in session to help people get uh, more able to um, rational, make rational decisions, mm -hmm. to think through uh, stressful events, 
know who, know who their support system is so that they can reach out to people for uh, for care and support if things in their life aren't going well outside of their gaming. Um, so you have to build up all of these positive behaviors before you can just take away something that mm. isn't working very well in somebody's life. I had a question. We had talked about this earlier, um, I know prior to this podcast, but I was wondering about the DSM-5 um, and how this is even diagnosed. So uh, internet gaming uh, disorder is not uh, uh, an official accepted DSM diagnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, neither is uh, internet addiction disorder. Um, okay. uh, both have been researched uh, mm -hmm. and both are in the DSM-5 as conditions warranting further research. So the they give some leanings or ideas about what uh, symptoms should be considered uh, mm -hmm. for further research. Um, but there's still a lot of questions out there about, uh, well, we don't have enough population uh, survey to get a sense of how accurate our reflection is for these sorts of conditions. Um, and so oftentimes when I'm working with people, I'm working with this in conjunction with um, something, some another condition that is uh, affecting them um, or that they're seeking out treatment for, uh, in addition to the gaming addiction aspect. And thinking about it more as a behavior we're wanting to modify mm -hmm. than necessarily an addictive disorder, because I think mm -hmm. that also comes with a whole other set of considerations that we're still debating in psychology mm -hmm. about can you really be addicted to something that isn't a substance. Um, there's just a number of different pieces there but it's affecting people's lives, so I really tend to like to work at it from the perspective of how can we change this behavior that's not working for you. Are you seeing in your own work um, any sort of growing demographic um, in relation to uh, gaming addiction? The people I think that we oftentimes think about for gaming addiction are adolescents and young adults, um, and mm -hmm. it's certainly prevalent in that population, and I think people are at, at risk for developing problematic gaming behaviors during that time in their life, and even even earlier. I know there's a lot been talked about and written about kids mm -hmm. and their access to technology, um, and I think that's really important. It needs more research um, mm -hmm. in terms of what we're seeing uh, and when there may be some more addictive kinds of behaviors developing in that population, um, younger than teenagers. But what's been interesting to me is to see the growth in uh, folks that are sort of in midlife and older. Mm -hmm. um, games are much more ubiquitous than they used to be. Uh, it's pretty easy to download games on your phone. Um, you know, thinking about my grandparents' generation or parents' generation, they mm -hmm. might start by downloading you know, hearts or something that they know and have played with their friends outside to move from that to some of the other most popular kind of games that are available on your phone or your computer. It's a pretty easy jump. And um, for we know with men uh, in, after their 30s, uh, decline in, in social network, less opportunity to interact socially with folks. And there's even some evidence for women, too, that the nature of their relationships, especially important ones, mm -hmm. shifts in, into their 30s and 40s. And so there's more opportunity for isolation, I think, and therefore more opportunity for people to take up uh, gaming mm -hmm. experiences. Uh, some of which, uh, like Second Life, give you an opportunity to sort of almost relive your own life, uh, but with uh, a whole other set of rules where you can be powerful and have a lot of financial wealth and influence that maybe in your regular life it was really hard to accomplish or you didn't land exactly where you hoped you would. So I was wondering if you could take a moment and share uh, what some of the games are that are out there, uh, maybe the types of games, just to give us a better sense of... Uh, what the world of gaming looks like today. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's so much out there now, right? So mm-hmm. we've moved well beyond just having sort of platformers, which still exists where you're trying to jump from one spot to another and uh-huh. not fall through the hole. Um, you know, things that are really popular and that also tend to be somewhat problematic for people. Um, so role-playing games have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be, they're generally quest-based. You're trying to accomplish something in steps. So mm-hmm. you have a larger quest and then you have a number of side steps that you have to go along the way. Uh, And in order to accomplish that, you're developing your character or multiple characters, their skills, abilities, um, the Mm -hmm. items that they have, etc. So Final Fantasy was a very popular one from the 80s. It got a lot of attention into the 90s as well. Um, The commercial for Final Fantasy VII is something most people in our generation can almost recite. given it's, uh, uh, it was everywhere on TV at that time. But these, these games are continuing and evolving from there. From, from there. Um, one that I think most many people who think about internet addiction, the first thing they think of are these uh, multi-person, uh, the uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games. So World of Warcraft being one that gets a lot of attention, um, given that it was uh, pretty revolutionary in terms of what it offered for people. Um, mm-hmm. But here you're basically taking all those uh, role-playing elements where you have a character and you're developing their skills and abilities, but you're doing it in the context of a world where your friend or person you've never met before is going through the same process right next door to you. So just like in real life, it benefits to have a social relationship with those folks um, so that you can accomplish quests together, but also trade merchandise. Um, and so they the worlds become something Uh, much, much larger than just what you can do online. Uh, It it moves out into forums and other ways that people are communicating about the game. So um, there's many other variations. I'm never going to be able to speak to all of them, but Uh that that population, the the, uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games are definitely something that um, they offer new content a lot, and so it's something that can really keep somebody immersed if they Mm -hmm. want to. Um, The other big one are these sort of strategy... uh, based games that um, many of them have been developed out from the massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Uh Um, And so Dota being an example, a very popular one that was uh, sort of a variation off of World of Warcraft, um, or League of Legends is also very, very popular. Um, In general, you're competing against someone else, you're controlling a character or set of characters um, Mm -hmm. with a goal of trying to uh, accomplish something uh, in in battle against someone else. So there's a ton of strategy and planning involved. Again, you want to have the kind of best powers or build up your character to be able to be successful. But you also have to uh, be able to anticipate what someone else is going to do, like a chess match. Um, And so people spend hours and hours just on writing theory of strategy. kind of talking about how they're going to prep for the game. And so, again, it, it becomes something that's even larger than the game itself. Um, much different than Mario, for example. Uh, or... yes. uh-huh. So from your experience, are people with gaming addictions at risk for other uh, addictions compared to the rest of the, rest of the population? And are you seeing any addictions in particular? Mm-hmm. So one important thing to look out for is uh, gambling addiction. A lot of Mm -hmm. gambling sites uh, allow people to uh, engage in gambling online. Mm -hmm. Um, It draws a different population, even than the person who might struggle with gambling and started out at a casino or a horse track, someplace where they had to go and and be a part of that experience. Um, You can do this from the safety of your own home. 
um, relatively easy to upload money and most folks who uh, struggle with video games are pretty technologically savvy um, and so it's pretty easy to move into uh, to that as a, another form or another way to sort of entertain it can become problematic for people over time um, I think it's also uh, important to look at substance uh, abuse in regards to uh, its relationship with gaming. So there are some there's some cultural overlap with uh, gaming and uh, the use of substances. So alcohol and marijuana are the ones that I see most commonly, probably because I think they're they're used by more folks. Um, but there's certainly a culture of uh, having your uh, opportunity to to blow off steam involve a combination of the use of a substance, drinking uh, to intoxication or getting mm -hmm. high and playing video games. Uh, and so the two can run together. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly it can contribute to people struggling. Uh, even if your marijuana use wouldn't meet criteria for an addiction, uh, when you use it becomes probably very difficult to pull yourself away from the game. Um, the kinds of things that would normally stop you or have you thinking about your other responsibilities aren't as likely to come into your mind. Okay. I had a question about, are there ways that games can be used therapeutically or in a positive way? Have you seen that at all in your work? I think in terms of, they can have a positive impact on people's lives. I, I think mm -hmm. it's important, I, I want to sort of leave this podcast without not leaving the impression that gaming is all bad and that uh, I actually think that in terms of some of the opportunities it provides for development of social skills, it's really useful um, uh, for a lot, of, a lot of kids who uh, get opportunities to socialize and interact in ways that they may not otherwise uh, mm -hmm. through gaming. Uh, gaming is great for learning things like problem solving and if we talked about strategy. These are things mm -hmm. that are pretty important when we're thinking about real life uh, experiences and opportunities and um, I've worked with plenty of folks uh, across fields uh, who their gaming contributed significantly to the kind of work mm -hmm. that they ended up doing whether that be directly in computer gaming development um, or in business and industries that required a lot of technical skill and the ability to plan ahead and uh, get something done in stages where you get incremental reward but not necessarily see the big reward until much later uh -huh. um, so I think there's some really positive benefits of gaming in general Therapeutically, there's some really interesting things that are being done, uh, particularly around uh, in the areas of trauma and, uh, and OCD around exposure opportunities. So um, uh, virtual reality gaming is becoming mm -hmm. a, a really interesting new trend, um, mm -hmm. and virtual reality exposure along with it being really an important uh, new tool for therapists that's being researched and utilized uh, so thinking about a combat veteran coming back from uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, an opportunity to place them in an immersive environment. Uh, they can re-experience some of the uh, real anxiety and terror of being in a space like that um, and be immersed in it and also interact with it. So not just having it passively happen, but they can move around, um, control their movements through the use of video games. Um, provides a really great sort of tactile and immersive exposure experience through the use of video games. So I want to thank Jason for joining us today. Uh, you can check out his website at jasondhackerphd.com uh, to either read more about him or to uh, contact him with any further questions. Um, thank you for joining us today. You can follow on the